I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is The Millionaire Inside, TMI, the podcast where I hope to give you too much information, to test the boundaries, to push the limits, mine and yours, so we can all figure out how to overcome insecurity, embrace failure, and achieve success on our own terms. I'm the founder and co-managing partner of a global investment firm called Skybridge Capital, which as of this taping, it has about $12.5 billion in assets under management. And I'm also the host of an iconic financial TV show, Wall Street Week, which we revived last year and now airs on Friday nights on the Fox Business Network at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In hearing that, you may think I'm the picture of success, but the truth is I've made a ton of mistakes. And I had many moments of extreme anxiety and self-doubt during my career. On this podcast, I will be sharing stories and lessons from my journey. And also, I'll be bringing in other successful guests from every walk of life that will add value to our mutual success. I want to make this communal. We're in this together. There will be too much information on finance, business, entrepreneurship, and achievement but also on self-coaching, on how to help yourself overcome things in your life. We all have things, believe me, that we've had to overcome. And I'm going to make it all personal. And one of the things you're going to learn from me, that business is very, very personal. In this week's episode, I'll get things started with some background on my upbringing and exactly what led me to Harvard Law School and eventually to Goldman Sachs. If you're ready for some action and some fun takeaways, let's go. take you back? It's 1980. I'm 16 years old. I'm working at the Key Food in Port Washington, and I'm getting a phone call over the top. You know, the the speaker comes on, and my old boss, who was a terrific guy, he says, Anthony, clean up on aisle seven. So I go down aisle seven, and there's pickles, pickle juice all over the place. I've got my apron on and the mop. I clean up aisle seven. I said, oh my God, $3.10 an hour. I'm cleaning up aisle seven. Anthony, Lou calls again. I need you to meet me outside by the loading bin. I go outside by the loading bin. It's the middle of the summer. It's 95 degrees, heavy humidity, and there are broken glass Coke bottles everywhere outside of the loading bin. I look over at Lou. I said, what's going on here? He says, well, this drunken bastard backed into the loading dock, and all of these uh, glass bottles crashed here. You need to clean it up. I said, oh, my God. Okay, Mr. Campanelli, I'm going to go out there and clean it up. I get the broom, and I'm out there sweeping, and I'm being stung by yellow jackets. And it's right then and there, at the age of 16, I have my epiphany that I'm going to college. Uh, I'm going to get myself a job inside where there's no heavy lifting. Uh, I'm out of direct sunlight, okay, and I'm going to work as a white-collar person. Please, God, let this happen to me. Now, I come from a family of people that never did that. Uh, my older brother went to college, I went to college, but we were the first two people in our family to actually go to college. Uh, and thank God I had this sort of epiphany because most of the people in my family uh, didn't do that. And you know, it's like that game of life when you're spinning the wheel. If you make a decision to go to college, it takes a little bit longer, uh, but you end up way more educated and you end up with the opportunity to wake, wake up and make way more money. Uh, and so there I am, I'm at college. 
Uh, and my father uh, basically turns to me and he hands me a $10,000 check. And he says, listen, son, I'm going to give you this money for your tuition. Uh, I just cashed out one of my life insurance policies from my union. Uh, and here's $10,000. Tufts tuition at that time was $24,000. And I said, okay, Dad, are you sure about that? You're giving up your life insurance policy? He says, yeah, this is what I got to do to help you get through college. And then it dawned on me that I could end up hurting my parents if I didn't do a good job in school. Uh, and so there I was, 18 years old. I was driving around in a 1979 Berlinetta Camaro. I was wearing gold chains. I had one of those, yep. If you guys remember this from the uh, late 70s and the early 80s, I had a, a, uh, a red horn dangling from the rearview mirror, okay? I was a total guido. I didn't have the IROC because the IROC was an Italian retard out cruising. I had the Berlinetta, so I really thought I was super sophisticated. There was a power booster in there. You put the cassette tapes in, you play loud music, and you drive around and act like a complete asshole in your hometown. And that's the trajectory I was on. I had mediocre grades in school, although I was a very good test taker. Uh, and my father came home one day after, after work, and he said to me, listen, you're going to go to a place uh, called Tufts University. And my brother and I looked at him and said, Tufts University? Dad, we never, never heard of the place. He said, yeah, I think it's spelled T-O-U-G-H-S. And so we got the Barron's book out. We opened up the Barron's book, and, of course, it was in there at T-F-T-U-F-T-S. I said, Dad, it's not spelled T-O-U-G-H-S, and it says most selective here. I said, how are we going to get into this school? He says, well, listen, my friend Billy Tommaso, uh, he knows the provost there. His name is Saul Gittleman. Uh, and so he sent my brother up to meet Saul Gittleman, and my brother got accepted to Tufts University. Uh, three short years later, he sent me up to see Saul Gittleman, and Saul Gittleman said to me, listen, your grades are not that good. Uh, you got a good SAT score. You said, I'm going to write you the recommendation. I'm not sure if you're going to get into this school or not. And I said to Saul, I said, listen to me, you got to, you got to understand one thing. If I get into this school, sir, I will not let you or my parents down. Uh, and, and I promise you that I'll, I'll pay it forward someday if you give me this opportunity. And so when I got to Tufts, I put down the Camaro. I took off the gold chains, uh, and I studied. I went into that uh, library almost every single night at Tufts. Uh, and people that knew me from high school were like, what the hell is this guy doing? I mean, how did he go from driving around in a car, drinking beer underage, uh, uh, actually driving a car at the age of 15 or 16 without a license, uh, hanging out at a motorcycle shop where I worked uh, for my uncle uh, from uh, the age of 13 to the age of 19. How did I go from there to Tufts University and a trajectory into Harvard Law School? lay that out for you in three or four simple concepts, three or four simple ideas. Idea number one, you have to make the decision. Uh, you can't stay in the middle because uh, uh, the middle stands for mediocrity. You have to make a decision about where you're going to go in life. Are you going to pursue excellence or, or not? And the big thing for most people when they make a decision about pursuing excellence is the fear of failure because they say to themselves, my God, what if I pursue excellence and this stuff doesn't happen for me? Um, and so what you have to do in that point is that you have to actually think about yourself failing and think about whether or not you're going to be resilient on that failure. Because if, you, if you're going to fail, 
uh, and you're successful in bouncing off of the failure, well, then you ultimately will be a success because the coolest thing about life is not like baseball, where baseball you get maybe 500 at-bats in a year. If you hit, if you hit 150 uh, hits and the 500 at-bats, you're almost a Hall of Famer. Uh, but in life, you get an unlimited number of at-bats. And so the first thing you have to do is make a decision to go for it. And the second thing you have to do is you have to overcome your fear of failure. And the way you overcome your fear of failure, you actually think about the failure, you digest it, and you say, okay, well, if this happens to me, if I end up failing, uh, what will my trajectory be? And the answer is you'll be on the same trajectory. Uh, and so it takes a little bit of stomach. It takes a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of courage to do these sorts of things. But if you can hit that crossover point, uh, you're on your way. And so now I want to take you really far back. It's in the mid-'70s. Uh, my dad, uh, he works in construction. My mom is a home homemaker. Uh, my, my brother and I and my sister are living in a small middle-class house on Long Island. I would never disrespect my parents by telling you that we grew up poor. We did not grow up poor. Uh, we lived in a great middle-class uh, environment, and we had a wonderful school system that we could partake in. Uh, but because neither one of my parents went to college, we didn't have the ingrained academics that were driving the family like some of the other families in that town. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you're out there and your folks are, are in the middle income area or even in the lower class and you're saying to yourself, how am I going to get there? Uh, uh, there's a way to do it. Uh, and it starts with your mindset. It starts with you thinking about and projecting where you want to be in your life. Uh, and if you can do that, uh, you can start to convert these things into a reality for yourself. So, so I'm at Tufts. I'm studying super hard. Uh, I'm getting some uh, early grades that are not so great, and I'm getting some early grades that are pretty good. And then I learned the system about how to study and how to stay in the game. And it just requires a tremendous amount of effort, tremendous amount of intensity. Um, I end up graduating summa cum laude from Tufts. Uh, but in that process, I'm thinking about what I want to do with my life. And I read a Time Magazine article. It's in uh, 1985. I'm flipping through Time Magazine. And there it is. It says uh, the, the law firm Cravath, Swain, and Moore, which is funny because it's some superstar wasp firm at the time that probably never hired an Italian kid from Long Island. And I'm flipping through the book. At least Mario Cuomo said that to me once when I met him. And so I'm flipping through the book, Time Magazine, and it says that Cravath, Swain, and Moore is going to pay starting salaries to their first-year lawyers $65,000 a year. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, my dad's making $39,000 a year. Uh, this is 1985. And I said, oh, my God, this is like $26,000 more than my dad makes. It's like 45% more income than my entire family's been living on. I said, I can't believe this. I'm going directly to law school. Because if I make $65,000 a year, it's more money than I could ever want or need. And so I start the process of applying to law school. I take the LSAT. I go to Stanley Kaplan in the Roosevelt Field Shopping Mall. Uh, took some of my savings to pay the tutor to help me with the LSAT. I score well on the LSAT, and I apply to seven schools. I get into six of them, are rejected by Yale, uh, but I get into Harvard Law School. And so it's February 6th. It's Ronald Reagan's birthday. It's, it's 19... 86, it's his 75th birthday, Ronald Reagan. I'm walking back from class. I go into the dorm room. I go to the mailbox, and I will tell you this because I was anxious back then. 
not that I'm not anxious today, but I was way more anxious back then, so uncertain about my future, so anxious about getting into a good school that every day I would run home after my economics class and check the mailbox. Nothing in the mailbox. Nothing in the mailbox. Nothing in the mailbox. February 6, 1986, I open the mailbox, and there's this very big, large package from Harvard Law School. Okay, so if you're listening to this, you ever apply to schools, you know that the large package, good, the small letter, bad. So now I open the package. Everything falls out on the floor right there in the uh, lobby of the dorm, and I'm sifting through, and I find my acceptance letter. I said, oh, my God, I'm going to Harvard Law School. I go upstairs in my dorm room. I pick up that old uh, touch-tone phone. I call my parents. I tell them I've been accepted to Harvard Law School. My mother says, great, is that, is that in Hartford? I said, no, Ma. I said, it's Harvard. She goes, okay, where is it? I said, it's down the block from Tufts, Ma. It's not in Hartford. She said, okay, well, that's great. My son's going to be a lawyer. Uh, and I said, okay, Ma. I hang up the phone. Uh, I, I look through the packet. I got to come up with $250. I go down to the, the, the bank. I withdraw my ATM card, $250, and I drive down to the Harvard Law School I'm in the Harvard Law School uh, admissions area with $250. A lady looks at me like I'm nuts. She says, I can't accept cash here at the uh, counter. you got to go at least get a money order. I said, oh, okay, no problem. So I went to the post office. I got myself a $250 money order, went back to the Harvard Law School. I handed her a $250 money order to guarantee my slot uh, for admission at the Harvard Law School. So now I'm back on campus telling people that I'm going to Harvard Law School. Uh, some of those people are saying congratulations. Some of those people are uh, looking at me with uh, dagger eyes of envy. Uh, it's just the way life goes. Uh, I said, okay, great. Now, what do you want to be, Anthony? I said, well, you know what? I'm going to be a Wall Street lawyer. That's what I'm going to do. That's what this place, Carraswain and Moore, does. And so I'm going to make $65,000 a year, which is 45% uh, more than my dad. And I'm going to go down to Wall Street. Okay, what are you going to do this summer? Geez, I have absolutely no idea what the hell I'm going to do this summer. I guess I could work for my uncle's motorcycle shop again. Or, uh, you know, maybe I could try to find a job as a paralegal somewhere on Wall Street. So I go back to the Harvard Law School. I go back to that admissions uh, counter. The lady remembers me because I was standing there with cash five or six days earlier. And I said to her, listen, I need some help here. I want to become a Wall Street lawyer and I want to work as a paralegal in one of these uh, law firms. And she cocks her head. She goes, I'm not really supposed to do this, uh, but stay here, don't move. And she comes back in about 15 minutes and she hands me a phone book size directory. And what it is, is it's the, uh, the directory of placement. These are all of the law firms around the country that actually come to the Harvard Law School and they interview people for jobs. And she says, take this with you look through the ones in New York and start calling the people. And I say to her, I say, listen, I said, do you mind? I see that alumni directory behind you there, the Harvard Law alumni directory. I said, I know you're not going to give that to me. I said, but do you mind if I borrow it for a week? And she says, uh, she says, no problem. Okay, and this is where your ambition comes in, okay? Because at the end of the day, there's a driving force in each one of us that helps us uh, uh, get to our goals. Uh, and if you can really feel your ambition, and you can feel super comfortable with allowing your ambition to intersect with your actions, 
okay, then big things can happen to you. Okay, so I want you to think about the audacity of this. I'm 22 years old, still got a lot of pimples on my forehead. I go back to my dorm room and I cross-reference the people that are working on Wall Street. Okay, what did I know, Wall Street lawyer from Small Street lawyer? Uh, I had no idea, okay, and you have to, I'm taking you really back, all right? There's no internet back then. Uh, there are uh, pay phones on, uh, on the streets. Uh, there's no cell phones. Uh, and I'm, I've got a Panasonic electric typewriter that I bought used that I typed up my resume on. And I'm looking over at this uh, alumni directory and I'm cross-referencing it with the placement directory. And I'm thinking that Wall Street lawyers, they actually work on Wall Street. I didn't know they worked all over the country. And so I say, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to go down to Wall Street. And I'm going to become a Wall Street lawyer's paralegal. And so I'm flipping through the book, and there is number one Wall Street, which is the old Irving Trust building. It got sold to uh, Bank of New York years later. And it's right across from Trinity Church, and it's sandwiched in between the New York Stock Exchange and Trinity Church. It's the first building on Wall Street. So, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I go home to Long Island. I live in Port Washington. I take the Long Island Railroad into the city. I take the number four. Uh, two train uh, from Penn Station down to Wall Street. I get out. I walk down the street to number one. You have to remember, pre-9-11, there's no security in these buildings. I go to the 28th floor of number one Wall Street. There's a law firm there by the name of Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. Now, Charles Evans Hughes uh, was on the Supreme Court. He then left the Supreme Court to run for president unsuccessfully in the early 1900s. Uh, but he started this firm, Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. It was an old-school, white-shoe, very waspy law firm. I'm riding the elevator up. I get to the 28th floor. I'm at the reception desk. And I say, is, uh, is you Jackson here? And she says, well, uh, Mr. Jackson is here. Is he expecting you? I said, no. I said, he's not expecting me. Uh, I was sitting there glistening in my 100% polyester shirt my 100% polyester black suit with a very thin guido tie. And then I had these, like, we used to call them cockroach killers back in the 80s because they had points on them, and you could step into the corner and kill a cockroach with these things in your, in your kitchen. Uh, and so she's looking at me. She's saying, well, is he expecting you or not? I said, well, yes. He's, uh, he's not exactly expecting me, but you please tell him that I'm going to Harvard Law School next year and I got his name from the Harvard Law School admissions people and placement people. Uh, and they said it was okay for me to come down here and talk to him. Hmm. She says, okay, hold on a second. So she goes in the back. And out comes this guy, Hugh Jackson. Now, the name has been changed to protect the innocent. He walks out. He's got these suspenders on. He's probably in his mid-60s. He's got his glasses. He says, uh, yeah, what, what can I help you with? I said, sir, I need 10 minutes of your time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm recently accepted at the Harvard Law School. I need a summer job desperately to help me pay for this thing. Uh, and I saw your name in the alumni directory, and I saw that your firm actually hires people from Harvard. I'd like to come work for you this summer. He says, okay, come back to my office. So then I, I take my resume out. I'm obviously a little nervous. I've got the right guard on, but I'm sweating through my shirt. And I'm explaining to him that I'll work tirelessly for him. He says, well, have you ever worked in a law firm before? No. Uh, well, what have you done before? I said, well, I've worked on a construction site. I worked in a local grocery. I delivered newspapers. I've delivered motorcycles in a three-speed 1975 Dodge. Okay, but I've never worked in a law firm before. He says, okay, well, listen, 
because we got a lot of work here. He said, uh, I could probably hire you for the summer as a paralegal. He says, I'll, I'll start you at $8 an hour. Does that work for you? I said, $8 an hour. I said, sir, could, could you make it 10 He goes, my God. He goes, you have some gall. Can you make it 10 I said, sir, I really need the money. I said, if you make it 10 I promise you I'll work 25% harder than eight. You got to give me the chance here. He says, hmm. He says, okay, you know, I got to talk to personnel about this. He goes, but I think we're going to have a deal here. I'll make it 10 I shake his hand. I go back to Long Island. It's, uh, I, you know, I've just graduated from school, so I'm, I'm, what am I going to do? I'm going to take my dad's boat into Manhasset Bay. I'm going to go water skiing. And I'm down on Manhasset Bay water skiing. Uh, I come back. I'm cleaning the boat. Uh, and my mother drives down to the marina, and she says, there's some guy, Hugh Jackson, keeps calling the house. you got to call this guy back. And I said, oh, my God. I, I get back in the car. I drive back up to the house. I call Hugh Jackson. He says, okay, listen, you got a job. But you got to start tomorrow. I said, I start tomorrow. I said, okay, great, fantastic. The problem is I only have this one polyester size sim suit. Um, and so I put the size sim suit back on. Uh, this is a memo to everybody. Okay, you can't uh, allow the size sim suit or any of your suits to start to smell like vegetable soup. You know what I'm talking about? You got to get it to the dry cleaner often, particularly if you only have one suit. So I put the suit back on. I start work. Uh, they asked me to get in at 9.30, so I go at 8 o'clock. Uh, memo to all the self-starters out there, you always want to be early. You want to be way earlier than your bosses, and you want to leave way later. So I get there at 8 o'clock. I'm waiting in the library, the law library. Finally, people start showing up at 9.15, 9.30, and they give me my assignment. I'm going to be staffed on the merger between Continental Airlines and the People's Express. Now, I don't know if people will remember that. Uh, people from the 80s would remember that. There was a discount airline. It was flying out of Newark. If you ever fly United now, uh, that hub really originally came from People's Express, which merged into Continental Airlines, and then United bought Continental. Uh, and that's the origin of why Newark is the hub for all this stuff. Uh, and so there was a guy by the name of Frank Lorenzo. He was based down in Houston. He was running Continental Airlines. He had the uh, company in bankruptcy. And at the same time he had it in bankruptcy, he was merging it with People's Express. And here we are. It's the summer of 1987. We're about to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty. And I'm down on Wall Street. We've got this great view of the Statue of Liberty from our building, 1 Wall Street. And we're going to see the fireworks display that summer. And you know why we're going to see the fireworks displays? Because I'm going to be working that night. It's the 4th of July, and we're going to be down there. Uh, working on this People's Express merger. And so by the middle of the summer, the guy I'm working for, I'm 22, the guy I'm working for is 28, he takes me to lunch. And we go to lunch uh, down on Wall Street. I think I'm the coolest guy ever now. I've got a couple of more polyester suits. I have finally worked in a large uh, commercial office building, one I had never seen before. Uh, my first cold call, uh, going to one Wall Street to become a Wall Street lawyer, I'm getting... I'm, I'm, I'm getting the job, and things are going pretty well for me. So I turned to Jerry, the 28-year-old, and I said, okay, listen to me. I'm super excited. I'm, well, I'm working hard. I said, but tell me about your job, and tell me about uh, what you're doing now at 28 after going to law school for three years. And then he hits me with the, uh, the rock slide. He says, well, I'll, I'll give you the good and the bad news. He says, the good news is I'm getting paid a lot of money. The bad news is I'm doing the exact same job that you're doing, even though I went three years to law school. He says, all I'm doing is I'm proofreading the stuff that you're doing. And uh, 
And then it dawned on me that these corporate lawyers, uh, you have to have a certain skill and you have to have a certain calling to be a corporate lawyer. And the truth of the matter is I didn't. I didn't have that calling. I didn't have that attention to detail. I didn't have that attention to focus. And this was the first revelation uh, on the embarkation of my career that I had it in my mind on paper because I was super focused on money that I was going to be a Wall Street lawyer. And I even targeted myself for Harvard Law School based on that. And guess what? None of that was true. Okay, so memo to people listening to this podcast, don't follow the money. Okay, you have to focus on things that you love and things that you want to do as opposed to following the money. I want to thank you for taking time to listen to this episode of TMI, The Millionaire Inside. Next week, I'll pick up the story and explain why I didn't learn my lesson about not chasing money in the summer of 1986 and how a series of audacious and frankly crazy decisions helped pave the way for my career on Wall Street. You can get in touch with us at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Scaramucci. That's S-C-A-R-A-M-U-C-C-I. Thank you and have a prosperous week.